I considered myself one of the foremost connoisseurs of nerdery. And yet when I met some of these master sommelier candidates, you know, these wine collectors, I came in contact with whole new species and scales of nerd that I did not know existed. And to be honest, they took that passion so far that it went beyond like sheer geekery into this something that was almost cool. Hello and welcome to Disgorged, a fun and spirited look at the world of wine and drinking. I'm your host, Zach Jabal, and joining me on the show today is Bianca Bosker. She's the author of the brand new book, Cork Dork, all about her journey from tech writer to wine obsessive. If you're interested in learning more about wine, boy, do I have some opportunities for you, from my weekly pop-up wine bar to classes on wine. Please check out disgorgedwine.com and vinetrainings.com, respectively, to learn more. My chat with Bianca is coming right up, but first, a thought. One of the questions at the heart of Cork Dork is, what makes a wine good? On the surface, it seems like a simple question to answer, but the more I think about it, the harder it becomes. Assessing quality in a subjective, sensorial realm is an intensely personal thing, and even then, I can't always explain to myself why I think a wine is good or bad. Yet I'll try to offer a few brief guideposts for how I categorize wine. Not every wine I'd consider good hits all these marks, but inevitably they hit at least one. Does it make me happy? Let's be honest, drinking wine is a sensual pleasure first and foremost, and if wine can't deliver this, it's hard for me to consider it good. Obviously, each of us has our different set of tastes, so while I might consider a heavy dose of new oak repulsive, you might enjoy it, just as my high-acid white wine might send you running for the hills. One thing is true for me, though, and that's that a wine must have at least some complexity for me to be captivated. That feeds into the next point, does it make me think? There's something to be said for drinking a wine mindlessly, but a wine that makes me stop and ponder for at least a second is likely to be one I enjoy. Whether it's an unexpected aroma or a flavor that gives me pause, these wines are rarely the most hedonistic, but often the ones I return to over and over again. Finally, is it made with care? To me, this doesn't refer to any specific grape growing or winemaking technique or dogma, but to the intentionality behind it. Arguing that there's one right way to make wine is silly, but I have great appreciation for every winemaker who thinks through each decision and makes the one that results in the best possible wine. So consider these questions and whether the wines you buy answer them in the affirmative. If not, maybe it's time to reconsider. Joining me today on Disgorged is Bianca Bosker. She's the author of the upcoming book, Cork Dork, uh, which comes out on March 28th uh, in stores nationwide. Bianca, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled. So I have to start with a, I think, a simple but also not simple question, which is in the over the course of getting uh, the knowledge and experience to write this book, you obviously uh, tr- traveled quite a journey as a, as a wine drinker and wine lover. Do you think that in the in the process of that journey, you've kind of lost the ability to drink wine uncritically? Do you have to think about everything you taste now? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, Thank you. I think, yeah, I think that I'd say that it's rare that at least in that first sip of wine, I'm not thinking really critically and, and analyzing it, you know, what am I smelling? How is it being made? Um, but usually by the fifth or sixth sip or the 
fifth or sixth glass, um, my critical faculties have dulled a little. Uh, but I actually think that that's a good thing. I mean, you know, approaching wine with a more critical lens, I don't see it as like a, a burden or something that's exhausting. Um, I think that it just makes the experience that much richer. And you can kind of shut it off. It's not like having the bad case of the hiccups where it just plagues you. Yeah. I find that one of the signs for me that I have been tasting too much wine lately is that I start swirling my water glass. Um, <laughs> just sort of reflexively. And then sometimes my wife looks at me like, what are you doing? Uh, so yeah, I that's for me, comes the, the territory. telltale sign is when I do uh, tasting notes for the subway, um, <laughs> which is a, quite a liability in New York, as you'd imagine. Yeah. Um, but uh, I say it's a lot more, a lot more cat pee and a lot less fresh to ground black pepper. Yeah. It's a lot of New Zealand soft blanc and, and maybe some, some, uh, some cork taint just kind of lingering. Yeah, right. At least let's hope it's very flawed natural wine. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, So, you know, you made the sort of the transition from uh, writing about and covering the tech industry to to transitioning into covering wine and or working around wine. To what extent is there some similarity in those two communities? Um, Or maybe there's none. I don't know. What, What was your experience like in transitioning from one world to another? So I would say that what drew me initially to the wine world was the fact that it was so drastically different from the tech world. So if you can imagine, I mean, I imagine a lot of you know, your listeners are people that spend a good amount of time around glasses or bottles, but, you know, working in tech, my life was screens, right? I spent all day, every day at screens, writing about things that happened on screens. My people drank Soylent, you know, bodies were this, kind of out, obsolete bit of technology that needed to be replaced by virtual reality. And after five years, I didn't realize how sick I was of it until I came in contact with this world of cork dorks and sommeliers and wine collectors. And so initially what was so appealing to me was that, you know, here I was spending all my time in this virtual world where it was really this life of sensory deprivation where here was this other group of people living at an other extreme of sensory cultivation, right? It's about taste. It's about smell. It's about the stories that we can tease out from these physical experiences. And I just found that so compelling. And that, you know, it it really, I got fixated on this question of what was I missing, you know, not just in a glass of wine, but really anywhere. I mean, you know, if you think about it, like, I enjoyed wine, but my idea of connoisseurship was less burgundy versus Bordeaux and a lot more bottled versus boxed. And so I was also really curious, you know, what was it about wine that people found so compelling? Like, why did people spend all this time and money on what essentially turned into very expensive pee? And so those were like the two questions that brought me to it. But I will say that to your earlier question, there are some similarities. You know, I will say that I am as a executive tech editor spent a lot of time with a lot of nerds and I considered myself one of the foremost connoisseurs of nerdery and yet when I met some of these master sommelier candidates you know these wine collectors I came in contact with whole new species and scales of nerd that I did not know existed and to be honest they took that passion so far that it went beyond like sheer geekery into this something that was almost cool. I mean, I just, I find that level of obsession fascinating. And so, so there are some similarities. Besides well, the fact, the fact, that, you, that, the fact was, that you might've had a couple of glasses of wine at that point might help with, with yeah. school too. <laughs> right. Um, 
but yeah, but I will also know, I mean, there's also some obvious similarities and like, you know, it's a world that traditionally has been dominated by a lot of men. Um, and that was one thing that I definitely was familiar in terms of the wine and the tech worlds. Um, we can debate, you know, who's better, who's worse, but, uh, yeah, wasn't totally unfamiliar in that regard. Interesting. Do you do you feel like either of those worlds was more welcoming of an outsider as someone who stepped in with? I mean, I don't. I guess I shouldn't say. I don't know when you first started writing about tech. You may have had a tremendous wealth of knowledge previously, um, but certainly stepping into the wine world as a relative neophyte, did you find that most people were welcoming, or was it was it sort of like you had to you had to find the right mentor or two until you got to a point where people respected your knowledge? Yeah, I think that, you know, with wine, I found, first of all, people are were incredibly generous with their knowledge. I mean, I think anyone that's ever sat at the dinner table next to someone who loves wine knows that, you know, one question can set them off on, you know, 10 to 30 minutes of talking about their favorite bottle. You know, next, um, time, next but, time I get, like, carried away, I'm just going to tell someone I'm being generous with my knowledge. <laughs> that's a good one. I'll keep that so, in mind. Yeah, <laughs> you're welcome. Um, but I think there was certainly, you know, look, when I started in the wine world, I was a civilian and civilians were rank amateurs that were not allowed be into this inner sanctum of tasting groups, you know, on the restaurant floor, you name it. There were certain thresholds that I could not cross. And so I think that while the wine world was can be very open to preaching to potential converts, getting to that next level where you can actually rub shoulders with sommeliers and get deep into those really elite collector circles, that takes some hard work and some very dedicated drinking. Yeah, it's true. And, and there's, there's a, there's definitely layers upon layers of, of sort of uh, how, how, how many inner circles there really are. Um, maybe there's one that I'm not even aware of. Um, so I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm curious, you know, sort of in that process of, of becoming more knowledgeable, uh, was there, was there like a, um, I guess I think like when someone starts getting into wine, like really starting getting into it, learning a little bit more about it, uh, tasting it, maybe joining a tasting group. There's always, I feel like for most people, there's a few, uh, wines, either individual wines or general kind of classes of wine that, that where you go like, oh man, like this is amazing. You know, whether it's, you know, it can be a lot of different things for different people. For you, what were the wines along the way that were really memorable, whether they're individual bottles or, or specific you know, varietals or regions or whatever? So I would say two things. One is, um, this is, you know, very small out of the way vineyard that I'm sure no one has ever heard of, but Chateau de Chem, um, <laughs> which was a, just a revelation. I was able, speaking of inner sanctums, of collector circles, um, through some very persistent needling, um, I was basically able to go to this absolutely insane dinner at Chateau de Chem where we tasted vintage upon vintage going back, um, I think as far as 1921. Wow. And I can only describe it as an orgasm in a bottle. I mean, that wine just warms you from the inside out. It is, it's incredible. I mean, there's a reason Thomas Jefferson brought back extra for his, you know, best friend, George Washington. Like there's, there's just something special and incredible about that wine. And yes, it sits in the bottle, but it's also it is the price, it is the expectation, it is the label, it is the history that goes along with it. And I think all of that is part of the flavor and the experience. Um, the other wine, I mean, that was to me a wine that made me feel the way I feel standing in front of some paintings, where mm -hmm. I just began to wonder about my place in the world. 
On the other hand, another wine that was a total revelation to me is a wine called Sledgehammer. Hmm. Sledgehammer is on the other end of the spectrum. And that was a big point of interest for me with this book because I really wanted to get, you know, the high-low of wine obsession in all of its forms because I think a lot of what we read about wine is incredibly interesting and nuanced but touches on a very narrow circuit, a very narrow swath of what goes on in the wine world. And so Sledgehammer is a wine that's made by Treasury, the big wine conglomerate. Mm -hmm. And Sledgehammer is a wine that was specifically designed for bros. This is a wine, the motto for this wine, and you can only grunt it, is meat, wine, good. (laughs) And this is a wine that, you know, as I understand it, is really made essentially um, the similar... A wine that was essentially made the way that people engineer new Doritos flavors or Swedish fish Oreos. Basically, you bring consumers together, you do tasting groups, um, and you essentially design the wine that people like the taste of. You know, we can use dozens of additives to up the mocha flavor, make it a darker color, lower the tannins, boost the tannins, crank up the acidity, crank it back down again. I mean, there's just so much manipulation that can go into the wines. And first of all, it doesn't have to be disclosed. And second of all, the point is that there's tons of manipulation that can go on with a bottle of wine. And no one has to disclose it. I think as a result, a lot of drinkers don't really understand what is the difference between yellowtail and a fine wine. So I found it fascinating to go inside and get this rare glimpse in these um, sensory research labs at how wine is really being designed from the consumer backwards to give it the same mass appeal as soda or beer. Um, And at the same time, understand, you know, I think to a lot of people, all bottles look the same, right? It's, they're made of glass. They've got a label on them. Um, and it was just understanding to really be able to visualize in concrete detail what are the things that, that separate all these different wines along this, uh, all these different wines on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Were, there, were there ones, though, in somewhere between uh, some of the finest wine in the world and some of the, <laughs> I don't know, the, whatever, the, whatever the sledgehammer, which appears, it does really sound like, I like the. Eyes. I'm going to call that the the Swedish fish Oreo of the wine world from now on. That's a good yeah. one too. Uh, so so I mean like because I think like you know one of the things that's always interesting to me is I feel like as a as a sommelier and just a, a person who's just knowledgeable about wine, people who are less knowledgeable about wine come to me and are like, oh well, what is your favorite wine or what do you like? And I hate that question because it's impossible to answer. And my I always say like, well, what like what am I drinking? What am I eating? Like where am I? Who's paying? Like those are all really like important questions to ask to clarify but but that being said you you must have come across some wines and somewhere between those two that you were like wow this is really cool or like whether it's a great story or whether it's a just a really exceptional wine like i, I don't know whether were there things that, that grabbed you yeah i mean there was i would say i mean i mentioned those two wines because i mean one made me feel the way that a wine could touch your soul and the other made me appreciate why I guess the other, the other made me appreciate what the full spectrum of wines were, mm-hmm. um, and how they differed, and what all the nuance was between them, and why it's important to think about making natural wines, or why it's important to think about, you know, native yeast. Um, not to say that one is better than the other, but just that these are, you know, really conscious decisions that can go in that speak to a whole different, 
aesthetic or worldview when it comes to making wine. Um, but I was going to say that, you know, for me, I, I don't know if this is exactly what you're asking, but um, I remember, I wish I could remember, I'd have to look back and see what bottle it was exactly, but um, I know that for me, drinking Vangeon from the Jura and liking it was a moment where it dawned on me that I had gone from Philistine uh, to something approaching a wine connoisseur. Because the wine that I liked before I started all of this was basically liquefied cool with California Chardonnay. And it was delicious. I mean, it was so good. It was very obvious. It was very vanilla. It was, um, I mean, vanilla flavored. Um, and it was something that it had a lot of bold, rich flavors that I could hold on to. And let me just say the Vangeon Smudra is the exact opposite. I mean, it tastes like boiled Martinelli's mixed with seawater, right? And it's absolutely delicious. And it just, I, it, for me, it was just this kind of moment where here I was, I was sipping this wine, I was obsessed with it, I couldn't wait to tell all of my friends about it, you know, get bottles to open for them at dinner parties. Um, and it was this double revelation of, oh my God, I like this thing that I never would have loved in the world. And secondly, that I want to tell people about this wine. I want to be that person at the dinner table who's droning on for 10 to 30 minutes, being very generous with my knowledge. Um, <laughs> so when you so, open a bottle know, like that for people, when, when you open a but, bottle like that for your friends who are maybe not as into wine, though, do they look at you like you're fucking crazy? Because I have that experience sometimes with like a thing that I'm really passionate about that, let's say, is more of an acquired taste. And then it's like, oh, you don't like you don't like. 20 year old Riesling oh yeah huh I guess that does seem kind of weird like when I'm going on and on about how it sort of smells like petrol and you're like yeah yeah that that's not what wine's supposed to smell like dude like I don't know I totally. feel like that's a common occurrence well I have two things one is um I I strongly I feel very strongly that we should stop saying petrol um because it essentially it's a very fancy word for a very mundane thing it's gasoline in the U.S. we call it gasoline that is my, my I still catch myself saying <laughs> petrol but I, I that is my bone to pick um, but yeah, that happens all the time. It happened last night. I, you know, ordered a Riesling. Um, I thought it was dry. It turned out it wasn't, but I thought I would try it anyway. And I thought it was delicious. I thought it would have gone great with the dinner. It was a little off dry. And my friend took one sip and said, no way. This is so sweet. I can't drink it. Um, so there's some cases if I'm paying for the wine, I will definitely force it on people. But if we're splitting the cost, um, I go back to something that's more of a crowd pleaser. Yeah. Well, and I think, again, you know, that's there's definitely knowing when to indulge your own sort of uh, intellectual curiosity and and when to maybe not subject anyone else to it. And that's, you know, that's a skill, right. too. Um, <laughs> so you, you talked a little bit more, uh, about sort of some of the, the science of wine and maybe a less uh, less savory way or at least a um, maybe a, a way that we don't think about it in terms of uh, mass produced and, and uh, sort of chemically altered wine uh but but talking about the science of wine more generally which is i think a thing you, you spent some time uh learning about how much do we really know like how much do we know and obviously that's a big question but like do we have a, a pretty good understanding of like why things taste the way they do to to humans which is i guess not just about wine and then along with that what are some of the like the sciencey things that you learned about that were particularly interesting yeah well i'm glad you mentioned that because I was really interested in exploring not only the soul and poetry of wine, but really the science of it. Because truth be told, as someone that had been a bit of a wine skeptic ahead of time, I was really curious to know how much of this is bullshit and what isn't. And I ultimately came away feeling that, you know, there's a lot of the bullshit that does ex exist in the wine world obscures these incredible truths 
that have far-reaching applications far beyond a glass of wine. You know, whether it's how we process experience, how we remember our memories. So I was particularly interested in the science of the senses. And I think um, basically since Aristotle and Plato decided that taste and smell were the lower primal senses and that people stank at smelling, we've ignored them. Scientists have ignored them. Philosophers have ignored them. Writers have ignored them. And first of all, we are way better at smelling than we think. There's this myth that humans forgot how to smell as they started walking upright and began to see the world in full color. Not true. As it turns out, there's all of these new studies that basically show that, you know, some of those animals that we consider some of the, like, uber noses of the animal kingdom are not necessarily better than we are. Actually, there's a really cool study where um, these professors blindfolded, covered the hands of, basically took these undergrads, wrapped them up like mummies so that the only thing that was left exposed was their nose and made them see if they could follow a scent trail of chocolate to a particular endpoint, just the way that like hunting dogs will follow the scent trail of a bird. And it turns out people are great at it. We were just as good. We followed the same techniques over time. You know, with practice, we got better and better. So if anyone's looking for a job out there, there's, um, you know, the chance we all have the chance to be wonderful hunting dogs, apparently. <laughs> um, but the second thing, so first of all, we should all take heart in the fact that we're a lot better at smelling than we think. Second of all, we can actually get better. I think there's a lot of really disheartening studies out there that argue that wine experts are at best delusional and at worst just total frauds. And, you know, we've all heard of the red wine dyed white and people mixing it up, you name it. But when you dig deep, expertise is not a sham. And so, you know, there's all these different um, exercises that you can do to actually hone your sense of smell and get better, be able to pick out more, to be able to pick out smaller concentrations, more nuance. Um, and more than that, your brain actually changes as you learn to process flavor with more expertise. So one of the things I actually did was not only to try and pass the um, certified sommelier exam with the Court of Master Sommeliers because I wanted, you know, a really black and white judge of whether I'd improved. But I also sought out this study um, that basically was replicating these uh, very well-known tests that took sommeliers and amateurs and put them into an fMRI and had them drink wine to see whether they processed flavor the same way. So, I don't know. Do you feel like your brain has changed? Like <laughs> drinking wine? I don't know. But the, the answer well, is how much? Wait, wait, wait. How much wine have I? How much wine have I been drinking? Because at some point, probably. <laughs> right. Well, so this study basically it, it, it sort of mapped to like what was the brain activity that sommeliers had versus naive subjects. Like you know, basically it it, it, it basically what they did is they they put people into fMRIs. They had them drink some wine, and what they found was that the brain activity, the sort of pattern, the map of the way the brain got activated in trained sommeliers was radically different from the way it looked in wine amateurs. Mm -hmm. um, and so I won't give it away. No, I won't give it away. I don't care. Um, no, you but can say, save it, it for the book. Buy the book, yeah. folks. Read the book. Uh, anyway, I, I, uh, I, I was able to go through a similar. I made myself a lab rat go through a similar experiment. Um, basically, the takeaway from these studies is we tend to think of taste and smell as being these lower primal senses. And it turns out that when we train them, we actually start to activate 
the very parts of our brain that make us human, these much more advanced, sophisticated, higher-level executive cognitive functions. And so it's, it's not just about savoring, you know, a Sauvignon Blanc from California versus, you know, one from uh, Sancerre. It's really about understanding the world in a much richer, nuanced way. So that's my pitch for everyone drinking a little more wine and taking a bit more time to uh, smell, smell the herbs and, and uh, improve your sense of smell. Well, and it does seem like uh, one of the themes of the book and, and that, that you've kind of touched on just there is that, you know, it's really people all the time say to me, and I'm sure to you and to pretty much everyone out there who works in the profession, oh, I, I don't know, I can't, I can't smell wine or like it all smells the same to me or it all tastes the same to me or what, I don't know. And, and right. I, you know, you, when you're working on the floor of a restaurant, it's kind of, you can't really be like, no, you're wrong. But, but sometimes I'm sort of like, you oh, know, you're kind of wrong. Like, try it. And I think it's just, you're right. We are, we are not, we are not tr- trained in this, at least in this culture, um, to talk, to, to pay attention to smell in particular, taste to some extent. Yeah. And, and even more than well, that. Well, I, I would say, I would say, first of all, that when people, when I was working the floor and people would say that, I mean, I don't know about your restaurant, but you know, we got, we got away with a lot of kind of unconventional things at terroir. Um, and yeah, you know, well, people, Paul is that I way. People, I think he lets, yeah. he lets a lot of unconventional <laughs> things go. But I would have a lot of people come in, and they would literally say, bring me anything, I can't taste the difference. And I would come back to them with, you know, a Pinot Noir from Burgundy and a super heavy-bodied Malbec, whatever the heaviest thing was that Paul had, and basically, you know, tell them, yes, you can taste the difference. Taste these two things. Tell me, you know, how does the weight, what is the acid? So, I don't know, I... I I agree that it can be a little hostile in some situations, but, um, but the point is most of us just don't pay attention. Anyway, yeah. I just interrupted you, so no, go that's, ahead. That's just fine. Uh, no, I was going to say, I think, you know, but what I was going to sort of say is that, you know, it's it, I definitely think it's true, and, and in my process of learning more about wine and, and all that, um, I don't doubt that my own ability to smell and taste things has gotten keener um, and that I'm not special in any particular way other than I am interested and, and spend a lot of time on it. But I think... One thing that I also think we don't pay a lot of attention to, and it's it's sort of an amalgamation of those things and other things, is texture and feel of wine. And I think a lot of people don't, you know, even to some extent in the sommelier community, I think tend to to focus a lot on smell from, a, you know, whether it's uh, aromatic compounds or, or, you know, fruit esters or things like that that they're trying to pull off or, or, or even tastes. And it, to me, it's the, the texture of wine. And I mean, I can only imagine what that, um, you know, beautiful 1921 Dequem uh, felt like not even just tasted <laughs> like but but you know that's that's a huge differentiating point in wines and and makes a huge difference and i think you know people yeah. people are often uh, it's not a thing that that a lot of um sort of uh civilians i guess to use your term are aware of exactly but texture has a lot to do with whether people like a wine or not um and it's not yeah, just a t- totally. it's not really a taste thing exactly but it's again just paying attention to what your body is telling you what your senses are telling you as you're tasting wine or as the wine is in your mouth. And, and I just think like I encourage people whenever, whenever they're like, I can't, you know, kind of to, to echo your example, I haven't quite done that one, but, but I often, uh, you know, per, put wine in front of people and say like, don't, don't try and tell me what the wine tastes like. Don't try and tell me, you know, what fruit it is. Just tell me what it feels like. Like what are what mm-hmm. is it doing on your palate? Is it sitting there heavy? Is it gone almost instantly? Like that's a starting point. And I think for some people it, it really makes a lot of sense because, um, you're not relying on a wealth of wine vocabulary that, that's like, oh, this is, you know, white peach right. and, and um, you know, crushed granite. 
It's it's like this wine feels heavy. This wine feels light. This wine feels broad. This wine feels lean, like you know, angular or narrow. Those are kind of yeah, you know, that's totally. another kind of part of it. Well, on that note, I mean, I think sweetness is another one, right? I mean, there's or even the alcohol, which can be something that's as much a feeling as it is a taste. I mean, more feeling. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's, I mean, as a part of that, I think it's interesting how little people know, really. I think about how to how they experience taste. I mean, smells. I mean, we can sometimes think we can distinguish a trillion different smells, which is incredible. Mm-hmm. We've got five tastes. I mean, maybe a few more if you count some of these new radical theoretical tastes like fat or calcium or water. Um, but I just I think it's you know sometimes even asking someone that doesn't know a lot about wine. You know, how sour is it, right? How much acid is in this wine? That should be a relatively easy question, right? We've all had sour things in our life before. Um, but I think for a lot of people, it throws them totally off guard. I think it's because we oftentimes rely on all of these other cues to tell us whether we're drinking or eating something sweet, salty, bitter, you name it, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we know it's a lemon, so we know it's going to be sour. We know it's a Snickers bar, it's going to be sweet. And so, you know, that's also why I think a lot of people, I mean, at Terroir, we would serve a ton of Riesling. Um, and people think all Riesling is sweet. And so they would automatically assume that it was sweet, even though, you know, either it was definitely dry, or there was just not nearly enough um, sugar that they'd actually be able to taste it. So I, I just think... The mind is a very powerful thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sort of what it boils down to. As I was learning to blind taste, I was taken aback by how much it relied not just on physical training, but really on mental training. You know, there was just so much mental self-control that had to go in. First of all, putting yourself on the line in front of a group of people who are going to listen to you, give this analysis of a wine, and then as a group, you know, tell you how wrong you were to think that there's been you know, oak on this wine when there wasn't. I mean, it's... I really think there's few things in the world that are that guaranteed to make you feel like a complete idiot. And so for me, it was just, it was this incredible experience of learning, you know, put aside all of these cognitive biases, all these things that are designed to be these external crutches, right? Trying to guess, oh, like, is it muscat? Like, is it muscatay? Like, no, like the other one. I think the other one's muscatay. There wouldn't be two of them. Um, God, like I missed Barolo last time. So like, maybe it is Barolo. I mean, all of these doubts, these egos, these questions, you really have to like clear your slate, clear your mental slate in order to tune into what the wine is actually telling you. Mm-hmm. And I just found that to be such an incredibly valuable experience. Yes, at a glass of wine, but also eating anything, looking at a painting, you know, listening, I don't know, to the sounds of the park in the morning. I, you know, it is a very different mindset where it really is about kind of eliminating our preconceptions and just experiencing the felt world as it is in front of us. So I just, I found for me that that was, you know, I just think so often when we're drinking wine or eating food, we settle for secondhand sensing, right? We let the price tell us how good it is. We let a menu description tell us what flavors we're tasting. And for me, in the process of really learning to taste wine, yes, it was about savoring wine, but it was also starting to have more confidence, I think, in my own tastes and also a more honest experience of the world around me. So. Yeah, well, I think it, uh, yeah, I think kind of comes back to what you said at the beginning, which was this sort of transition from a world of of virtual reality and screens to to back into a sort of a 
a body, a sensorial um, way of looking at the world and, and, and being able to heighten those senses and also maybe in a deeper way than before, I would guess, probably trust them that you're, that the things you are detecting, you know, are really there or that, or that they're there for you at least. And obviously, you know, different people can have uh, different people with similar levels of expertise can experience different things in a glass of wine. But, uh, but just in trusting that the sense data that your body is gathering. Exactly. Exactly. And I think, you know, I think a lot of us focus on, look, I think a lot of us focus on finding food that tastes better, whether it's paying for these expensive omakase meals or, you know, tracking down these exotic natural wine producers. And people rarely focus on teaching themselves to taste well. And those are two very different things. I mean, and I think we gain a lot by actually taking the time to, like you said, learn to trust these senses that we're not used to trusting, learn to listen to them, which we're also not used to doing. Um, and this is maybe, you know, my Pacific Northwest Portland roots coming out here a little bit, but, you know, we all heard of mindfulness because of the buzzword, but I found at the end of this whole process that I had really come to value what I would describe as the state of sensefulness. And that I found that it was really by tuning into my senses, all of them, I mean, not just taste and smell, that I learned to make sense of the world. I learned to tune into these, you know, the subtle heartbeat of the place that I lived in. And again, that, yes, that applied to a bottle of wine, um, but it could just be so much more than that. It's true that there are sort of those, I guess you could almost call them tasting experiences all around us, and they're not always found in a bottle or a glass. So that's super cool. Uh, one last yeah. question for you, um, and I, this is maybe an easy one, maybe a hard one, uh, but um, what what now? Like now you've you've done this, you've <laughs> you've you've written a book. It, uh, as mentioned, comes out on March twenty eighth. Um, but are you are you a wine professional for for life now? Or I mean, maybe that's no one knows what they're doing for life. But but do you do you see this as the the field you want to continue to work in? Do you want to write about it more, or or are you? Do oh, you have for something sure, else? I have. Yeah, I mean, I have a whole laundry list of um, stories and drafts right now that are related to um, the wine world for sure. I mean, I just, I think that there's, you know, I got had so many incredible experiences and there were only so many of the stories that actually made it into the book. And I did have a lot of people that warned me before I embarked on the book, you know, are you, are you really sure that this is a topic you want to choose because by the end of it, you're going to be completely sick of what you're writing about. And it was a little bit of a gamble for me because I didn't know a lot about wine coming into it. I mean, that's just true. It was really the story of, you know, coming in as an outsider. But I'm even more obsessed than I was at the beginning. I mean, I found myself, I was attracted to the topic because I'm someone who is obsessed with other people's obsessions. (laughs) And I ended up obsessed by the end of the book and the whole process of learning to taste and training as a sommelier. So it's absolutely something I want to continue with. Um, I also find that for me, the book is sort of a way for me to have these conversations that I would have at the table when I was working as a sommelier. But instead of doing it for one table at a time, you know, my hope is that I can have that conversation with you know tens or hundreds of people, you know, God willing, that read the book. And so it's um, I don't know. I think. I'm sure that, you know, not everyone will agree with the stance of the approach that I took, but, you know, not every sommelier has the same spiel or recommendations at the table either. So this is for me, you know, my 
it is sort of a way that I can have a continuation of, of the conversation that I have on the floor. Excellent. We'll look forward to uh, hearing that conversation continue past this book and uh, look forward to see what comes from you uh, in the future. Thank you. And I would love to uh, share a glass of wine when I come to Seattle. That, that can be arranged. I have, I have to say, and I'm not just pandering. One of my favorite sparkling wines comes from uh, Washington State. So. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> Uh, I, yeah, well, I'd be, I'd be curious to, uh, to learn more. So yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll try and make that happen. And, and Bianca, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And, um, I, uh, can't wait to, um, yeah, I don't know. That's it. Thanks again to Bianca Bosker for joining me on Disgorged. You can find Cork Dork on bookshelves nationwide, as well as at your favorite online retailer. For more information about the book, check out BiancaBosker.com or find her on Twitter at bbosker. For more Disgorged goodness, follow me on Twitter at ZJabal or on Instagram at Disgorged Wine. Thanks so much for listening and cheers.